0: Welcome to done and done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. And oh my, it is a double dip this week into done and done episodes. I am thrilled that you are with us today. Thanks so much for joining. Today I am using the Taylor Swift song The Lucky One as a theme for our story about Judith Campbell Exner. The Lucky One is quite in contrast against Mirrorball, what I think of when I think about Marilyn. Just like Judith Campbell-Exner is quite a contrast against Marilyn. These two women were both very ill-used by men in many different ways. But Judith Campbell-Exner got out and just in time, too. Judith's story is largely... Not told, or at least in the way I think it should be. You might hear her name and some not great things come to mind that get ballied about when it comes to Judith. She's a mafia doll, she's a political mistress, she's a sex worker. All largely untrue. Judith Campbell Exner was in fact very much part of the community and colony of Hollywood. This is before her time, though, as a 1960s topic of hot gossip. Judith has quite a storied history, and I think there's much to discover about her life where she is a little bit more connected into so many tangents. What are some of these? Judith's parents hung out with Bob Hope and his wife. The second boy that Judith ever dated was Robert Wagner. Her first husband, co-starred with Elvis in Love Me Tender. As a young married woman, Judith partied with Charlton Heston and Lloyd Bridges and their wives. Prince Ali Khan once ate a hot dog in Judith's parents' kitchen when he was trying to woo Judith's red-headed sister after Prince Ali Khan separated from Rita Hayworth. That same sister was once married to Lucille Ball's second husband, Gary Morton. Desi Arnaz once made a play for Judith in an elaborate ruse involving a purported penthouse bash that turned out to be a shadily orchestrated party for two. Judith dated Frank Sinatra. Judith fell in love with John F. Kennedy. Sam Giancana was her phone buddy before becoming her lover. Judith and Eddie Fisher used to stay up all night talking about his problems with Elizabeth Taylor. Judith also hung out with politicians, movie stars, and gangsters, many of whom ended up indicted or dead. Do I have you hooked? Let's investigate. Cats investigators, Judith Campbell Exner's story is really amazing. This one is long and detailed. Settle on in if you are in the mood for a good yarn. This episode, with many thanks, is possible by the tremendous ability of our friend Melanie Z, sending Melanie an enormous thanks for the stellar dissection that she did in word form and research and story for Judith Campbell Exner. Thank you, Melanie. Your talents are amazing. I can't wait to tell you about Judith Campbell. Judith Campbell Exner was, if you really want to think about it, the Forrest Gump of the early 1960s. These are the 1960s of full skirted cocktail dresses and standaway collars. The 1960s filled with girl groups and space age bachelor pads. The years between the Eisenhower administration and the sexual revolution both defined Judith Campbell and later, as she saw it, stole her life as well. Sources will be listed in show notes for this, friends. Melanie has done a tremendous job pulling a lot of different resources. From People Magazine here, February 29th ninth, 1988, Judith Campbell Exner says, for the past 25 years, I have been terrified to tell the truth about my relationship with Jack Kennedy. In fact, I've gone to great lengths to keep the truth from ever coming out, which is probably the reason I'm alive today. With the exception of Sinatra, all the key figures involved in my story have been murdered. Comparing more recent decades with Judith's high-flying decade, Judith Campbell Exner was the Monica Lewinsky of her day. Both women were defined in the public consciousness by brief affairs they had in their 20s, relationships with sitting presidents that they most likely would have never publicly discussed had they not been exposed. The parallels between Lewinsky and Judith Campbell are not lost on Judith. During the height of the Clinton scandal, Judith will tell L.A. Times reporter Pat Morrison in regard to Monica, she is so young, she doesn't know that this is destroying her life. If she's offered a book deal, she'd better take it and invest it wisely because that girl is going to be the butt of every foul joke for years and years to come. This was back in 1998, September of that year. From that same article, around the same time, Judith Wilfax the LA Times reporter, an ad for a bus tour called Playboy's History of the Sexual Revolution. Her old house was part of the itinerary. This, she wrote across that clipping, is what Monica has to look forward to. Judith also predicted that while the fallout for President Clinton would prove momentary, Monica would be forever marked as I am she will forever be used by the Republicans and the Democrats, as I am and as I was. Although Monica Lewinsky has been able to carve out a niche for herself as an anti-bullying advocate and Vanity Fair contributor, Campbell Exner spent most of the 37 years after her affair with Kennedy ended in fear. Judith was dismissed by many as a drab footnote, to the high-handed legacy of John F. Kennedy. In 1977, Judith told her ghostwriter, My life has either been woven in a blanket of coincidences, or it has been one monumental conspiracy. Let's judge for ourselves. Judith Eileen Catherine Amore was born in New York City on January 11, 1934, Judith will add the Campbell when she wed actor Billy Campbell. Exner is the name of Judith's second and last husband, golf pro Dan Exner. Judith was the fourth of five children. She has one older brother, two older sisters, and a brother who was eight years younger than baby girl Judith. Judith does not spend a lot of time alone. Remember that. Her parents will tell Judith that her dad was German and her mother was Irish, but... That's about the extent of what Judith heard. In her own book called My Story, Judith will write, I don't know too much about my family. My mother didn't sit down and tell me about the heartaches of the past. She only told me the good things about the family. Not only is Judith not very knowledgeable about her family history, she's also taught not to ask questions. Judith's mother, in fact, had modeled at Bonwit Teller department stores, and Judith's father was an architect who really didn't play well with others. Judith's father bounces from firm to firm, leaving or being asked to leave over personality conflicts. Judith's father will gain a little traction designing and constructing hospitals, but that doesn't really stop his bouncing, When Judith's father isn't working as an architect, he is working in the movie business as a set designer and often socializing with people in the industry like Bob Hope and Burt Lahr. Because of this, Judith is growing up around movie stars. Judith is not intimidated by celebrity. In her autobiography, Judith talks about her childhood in terms of fear. She has a fear of the dark, a fear of the Catholic Church, a fear of loud noises, and most of all, a tremendous fear of her father. When I think of my father, I hear thunder, she writes. He was a tall man with a barreled chest, and the sound would rumble and ricochet off the walls like thunderclaps on a summer night. The problem my father had was that he came from an immensely wealthy family. My father was probably the worst money manager that ever was. He never got the hang of living on less than he was accustomed to while growing up. Our life was always an economic seesaw. It was either everything in the world you could ever want or nothing at all. He had money coming in from his father, but he lost most of it in bad investments and high living. Add to some of the shade that Judith has given growing up. She grows up believing that her grandfather is a wealthy real estate tycoon who is subsidizing their family. To add to all of Judith's fears here, important to know that Judith's parents do have a very volatile relationship. Judith's father will leave the family at least three times during her childhood. That always comes back, though, and divorce was never mentioned. Judith's mother is staunchly Catholic. Although Judith never explicitly states that her father was unfaithful to her mother, her stories do indicate that her father's behavior has a destabilizing effect on the family. Between his temper and his absences, Judith's father keeps the entire family unit off balance. There must have been a lot of pressure on the other members of the family not to upset dad, just to keep the peace. Not really an ideal childhood for our sweet Judith. During one of her parents' reconciliations, when she's nine years old, Judith and her sister Jackie are sent to live with wealthy relatives in Chicago. Both girls, Judith and Jackie, were enrolled in school during their stay, but Judith had never been separated from her mother. Judith really begins to struggle. Judith and Jackie are only in this school for about a month. However, Judith will later describe the incident in life-changing terms. Something very traumatic happened. Something that changed my attitude about school and quite possibly my whole life. I was held back a grade. From that moment on, I hated school. I never got over it. Taking Judith a few more years down the road here, when Judith is 14, her mother was in a near-fatal car accident. Although her mother does recover, almost losing a parent traumatized Judith. She dropped out of high school and was tutored at home. Judith claims that she passed the test required for homeschool students, but she never graduated. She will write, I think if I had went back to Immaculate Heart, as difficult and embarrassing as it was, I think I would have... Well, I don't think I would have married Billy Campbell. The exchange with the other students would have helped me develop emotionally. I would have dated more and I would have gained more experience with boys. Consequently, I would have matured more quickly. Let's go ahead and talk about Judith's first marriage. These are the Billy Campbell years. Now, Judith will only date two boys before she meets her first husband, the actor Billy Campbell. Robert Wagner was one of those boys. Judith will write, He was just beginning in pictures. He was more a good buddy than a boyfriend. I knew his parents well. I had been to their home. It is, in fact, Robert Wagner, future husband of Natalie Wood, who will escort Judith to the party where she meets Billy Campbell in 1950. Judith was 16. Billy was in his late 20s. Judith says, He told me he was in his early 20s. I didn't discover his real age until I saw a copy of his naval discharge papers after we were married. Judith and Billy will date for two years before getting married in 1952. Judith, unfortunately, will find out later that Billy was also seeing her sister Jackie on the sly. Judith's parents are not thrilled. In fact, they really don't like this relationship for their daughter, but. Even the two of them eventually give up trying to convince Judith to break up with Billy. Billy's mom is even less supportive of the relationship than Judith's parents. The first time Billy takes Judith home to New Jersey to visit his parents, Billy's mother takes an overdose of sleeping pills and will blame Judith for that overdose. Judith writes, Sometimes I think I married Billy to get away from home. Because of the imperious strength of my father, I interpreted Billy's weakness as gentleness. I think I was impressed that he was impressed with himself. I thought it showed a certain amount of confidence. At this point in her life, investigators, remember Judith's confidence has taken quite a serious hit when she was held back in school. By this time as well, Judith's sister Jackie was a contract player at Paramount working under the stage name Susan Morrow. Judith tried to follow in her sister Jackie's footsteps and pursue a career in show business. Her sister's agent overheard Judith singing at home and got Judith an audition with MGM musical producer Joe Pasternak. The day of the audition, though, Judith's nerves constricted her throat. It tightened her voice, and Joe Pasternak tells Judith to come back in four months, but she never followed through. She'll write, I tried to be an actress, but it hadn't worked out. Judith and Billy will socialize with industry people like Charlton Huston, Beau Bridges, her starlet sister Jackie, and her first husband, Gary Morton, who would later become Lucille Ball's second husband. Billy was gone a lot, though. Judith kept herself busy. She took some extension classes at UCLA and went on girls' trips to both Palm Springs and Las Vegas. Unfortunately for Judy, Billy Campbell was a diligent philanderer. It is finally after catching him with another woman that Judith, in 1958, after six years of marriage, finally leaves Billy Campbell. The six-year-long first marriage will leave Judith with a very cynical view of the institution of marriage. She will write, it seemed to me, that married men were worse than the single ones. They were always looking, always hunting. You'd see them at parties with different girls, and every once in a while, you'd see them at a party with their wives. As far as I was concerned, I'd made up my mind that if I got married again, I'd have to accept that my husband would cheat. 1958, friends, Judith had been with Billy Campbell since she was 16 years old so she basically missed the end of her teens and her early 20s. After her divorce, Judith will move in with her sister Jackie and begin dating. Judith gets alimony from Billy Campbell for two years, then a lump sum payment of $6,000. Judith says, I didn't want his money. Besides, I didn't need his money. Through my father, I was getting money from Grandpa Moore. At least that's what my father told me, but I've often thought that it came from him and my mother. For many years, my father claimed me as a dependent and provided quite handsomely for my well-being. I think this comes into play because in all the tales that will come out, we hear Judith Campbell referred to as a sex worker. Part of the reason is that she lives a pretty lavish lifestyle with no visible means of support. Judith is not an actress. She's not old money, and when she begins telling her story publicly, Judith describes her grandfather as a real estate tycoon, and the press seems to have accepted this. But truthfully, there's not a whole lot of paper trail on rich grandfather real estate tycoon. According to the 1920 census, Grandpa was a saloon keeper, and every adult male in his household were all employed in the liquor ore brewing industries. An article on the Find a Grave Memorial website, written by one of his great-grandchildren, claims that the family got out of the booze business at the start of Prohibition, then made their fortune in the real estate business. That's not normally the way the story goes. This would have been very unusual. What we do know is that Judith's family were working class when booze was legal, and then became, in Judith's words here, immensely wealthy during Prohibition. It is possible they could have made their money in real estate, but if that was the case, you'd think there'd be more of a paper trail. You'd also think that if Grandpa was so big in the real estate game, he could have set his architect son up in business rather than having Judith's father bounce around from firm to firm to firm for years. We also have the curious case of Judith's uncle, Armand, but more on that later. Soon after her divorce, Judith will fall into a relationship with the singer, Tony Travis. Judith will eventually move in with him. She says they would have been married, but Tony was as prolific of a cheater as Billy Campbell. Judith will break up with Tony Travis, move back in with her sister Jackie, and then one night a guy comes up to her at a party and tells Judith that Frank Sinatra wants to meet her. It is November 1959 when Frank Sinatra asks Judith out to dinner in Hawaii. Sinatra was there on vacation with Peter Lawford, Peter Lawford's wife Patricia Kennedy, and a bunch of other friends including Al Hart, who was a known associate of Chicago mobster Joseph Fusco. After Sinatra assured Judith that she'd have her own room, Judith hopped right on a plane to Honolulu. I want you to remember this from November 1959 on. As soon as Judith Campbell agrees to go out with Frank Sinatra, she will suddenly find herself surrounded by the Kennedys, mobsters, well-heeled associates like Al Hart, who will later head the city national bank of Beverly Hills. This is November, 1959. Jack is about to announce his run. Peter and Patricia are the West Coast headquarters. Timing here means something. During this trip, Frank Sinatra and Judith will begin a sexual relationship that they will continue back on the mainland. But it is Frank Sinatra's Jekyll and Hyde personality which will soon kill the romance. It turns out the final straw for Judith was Frank Sinatra ambushing her with a threesome that she did not provide any consent for. Of Frank Sinatra, Judith says, once he gets someone under his thumb, it's never ending. He will just mistreat that person whenever it suits them, whenever he gets in one of his black moods and needs to abuse something or someone Would also like you to know that on this same trip in November of 1959, that Peter Lawford made a play for Judith, right under the nose of his wife Patricia. Judith later suspected that Peter Lawford had badmouthed her to Sinatra, writing, "I don't have an ounce of respect for Pete Lawford. I think he's an ass. He makes the best flunky in the world because it's important to Pete to be with important people. He'll sacrifice himself." take a tremendous amount of punishment just to be there with Frank. After one of Sinatra's temper tantrums, Frank said he wanted to make it up to Judith. So he invited Judith to go see his show at the Sands in Vegas. Frank and the rest of the Rat Pack were in town shooting that little movie called Ocean's Eleven, and their brand new Rat Pack nightly act was the hottest ticket in town. Over the next few months, Judith returned to Las Vegas several times, often with her sister Jackie. On February 7, 1960, Frank Sinatra will introduce Judith to Jack Kennedy, who was then running for president. Judith at this time will also meet Jack's brother Teddy. Teddy Kennedy will make a play for Judith Campbell that night, which she politely declines. The next day, John Kennedy will invite Judith to lunch. He asked for her number, and over the next month, John Kennedy calls Judith from the campaign trail a lot. Exactly one month later, on March the 7th, 1960, John Kennedy meets Judith Campbell at the Plaza Hotel in New York City where the two consummate their relationship. People magazine describes it this way from February 29th, 1988. A week after Judith slept with JFK for the first time, Sinatra invited Judith to join him in Miami Beach at the Fountain Blue Hotel where he was appearing. There, Frank introduced her to his mobster friends, Joe Fischetti and Sam Giancana, whom Sinatra called Sam Flood. I didn't know then that Sam was the Chicago godfather, says Exner, but I did know he was important to Frank because of the way Sinatra acted around him bowing and scraping and being so deferential. Now, during this same trip to Miami, Judith will meet up with her Uncle Armand Sarami. Uncle Armand is the owner of a popular local restaurant called Tony's Fish Market. The day after this little family reunion with Uncle Armand and Judith, Frank Sinatra will introduce Judith to Sam Giancana. A few days after that introduction, Uncle Armand tells Judith that he has donated $20,000 to John Kennedy's campaign, the equivalent of that over $200,000 these days. If Uncle Armand was looking to buy his way into Kennedy's good graces, though, it did not work. Soon after Kennedy was elected, Armand Sarami was put under FBI surveillance as part of Robert Kennedy's anti-racketeering campaign. According to FBI documents declassified in the late 1990s, Sarami was a known associate of Charlie the Blade Turin, a high-ranking member of the Genovese family who ran the family's gambling interest in Cuba. It should be noted that Sam Giancana had extensive gambling interests in Cuba, Both men are friendly with the Traficante family, who run South Florida. It would have been highly unlikely that Sam Giancana, Charlie the Blade, and Judith's Uncle Armand did not know each other. As Judith's relationship with John Kennedy is blossoming in 1960 during his presidential campaign, Judith doesn't get to see Jack as much as she would have liked. It is here that Sam Giancana fills the void. Sam Giancana calls Judith every day. He will invite her to Chicago as well, where Sam introduces Judith to his family and friends, including other mobsters, known associates, and front men. Judith will later describe her relationship with Sam Giancana as a very special part of my life. I loved his phone calls. Even when he was exasperated, he was a joy. He demanded nothing from me, and he wanted to give me the world. That was supremely flattering. No woman, I don't care who she is, can help but be impressed with this quality of attention from a man. So maybe you're asking yourself, how does a nice Catholic girl from an upper middle class family end up in this particular spider web? Judith will say, I don't know how to explain my relationship with some of these men. Without meaning to seem immodest, perhaps I flattered their egos. I was a beautiful girl, always impeccably groomed and with an elegant wardrobe, and they liked being seen with me. Once we got beyond that stage, I think they liked having a woman as a friend or a drinking buddy, someone whom they could tell their troubles and find a sympathetic ear. Now Judith's version of events will indicate that Sam Kana groomed her for her role as courier. At first, she'll say that Sam's requests were innocuous, even mundane. If she was going home to Los Angeles, Sam would ask her if Judith would be visiting her starlet sister at the studio. If so, Sam would ask Judith to ask Red Skelton's manager to give him a call about a possible club date. Remember, this is the age before cell phones, before social media, when people were harder to get a hold of, There's nothing out of the ordinary about passing along these kinds of messages, especially in a community, a colony, where everybody knows everybody. But over time, these requests do become a little less casual and a little bit more urgent. Soon enough, mobster Johnny Roselli will get involved, as will John Kennedy. Judith tells People Magazine in 1988, I lied when I said I was not a conduit between President Kennedy and the mafia. I lied when I said that President Kennedy was unaware of my friendships with mobsters. He knew everything about my dealings with Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli because I was seeing them for him. I wouldn't have been seeing them otherwise, and I never would have known mobsters if it hadn't been for Frank Sinatra. Once Judith knew Giancana and was intimate with Kennedy... Now Judith is in a perfect position to act as a liaison. She'll say, I feel like I was set up to be the courier. I was a perfect choice because I could come and go without notice. And if noticed, no one would have believed it anyway. Judith will produce plane tickets, hotel bills, and her appointment books from 1960, 1961, and 1962 as evidence once she finally discloses the big secret that she keeps for all these years. She'll say that only her husband, Dan Exner, knew the truth. Judah says, I never told anyone else because I thought I'd be killed. Look what happened to Jack and to Sam, who was murdered in his house while under police surveillance. Judith's first assignment as courier, she says, was suggested by John Kennedy at dinner in his Georgetown townhouse on April 6, 1960. Jacqueline Kennedy was then pregnant with John Jr. and was away in Florida. Judith says she felt uncomfortable making love with Jack Kennedy in the bed he shared with his wife. However, Judith says, my interest in Jack, my need to be with him, was stronger than my conscience. A third person, a lobbyist named Bill, was also at dinner that night. Judas says he and Jack spent the entire evening discussing strategy for the West Virginia primary. That was the one he was really worried about because he was Catholic and was running against Hubert Humphrey, a Protestant, in a state that was 95% Protestant. Jack and the lobbyists talked about getting money into West Virginia and about who had influence in the state. In the middle of their conversation, Jack turned to me and said, Could you quietly arrange a meeting with Sam for me? Judith responds, Why or should I ask? Judith had told Jack Kennedy in a previous phone conversation about being introduced to a Sam Flood, one of Frank Sinatra's closest friends. Judith doesn't know until months later that Sam Flood is the Chicago godfather, Sam Giancana. She now assumes that Kennedy was well aware of Sam's identity. The answer that Judith does get back from Jack, he says, I think I may need his help in the campaign. Reinforcing he wanted to get a meeting as soon as possible and to give me a few dates that were good for him. Judith Campbell, pleased to be of help. Judith calls Giancana the next morning and says she'd like to talk to him in Chicago. Judah says I arrived at 8.30 a.m. on April 8th and talked to Sam at a Chicago club. I told Sam that Jack wanted to meet with him because he needed his help in the campaign. Sam agreed to the meeting and we set a date for four days later at the Fountain Blue in Miami Beach. I called Jack to tell him and then I flew to Miami because Kennedy wanted me to be there. Jack Kennedy will meet with Sam Giancana at the Fountain Blue Hotel on April the 12th, 1960. Judith says, I was not present, but Jack came to my suite afterward, and I asked him about how the meeting had gone. He seemed very happy about it and thanked me for making the arrangements. He then stayed with me for an hour or so, and we talked about the campaign. Jack told me that if he didn't get the nomination in July, he and his wife would get a divorce. He didn't say he was leaving her for me or for any other woman, or that Jackie was leaving him for any other man. He simply said that their marriage was unhappy and the divorce was a mutual decision between them. As Kennedy was leaving, he handed Judith an envelope, telling her not to open it until he had gone. Inside, Judith found two $1,000 bills. Jack said he wanted to pay for the new mink coat that I had worn to his house in Georgetown. Or if I wouldn't let him do that, then he wanted me to buy something special. Judith will keep the cash and later deposit it into her checking account. It does appear that that first meeting between John Kennedy and Sam Giancana is about the West Virginia primary. FBI wiretaps at the time show large mafia donations to the state campaign in West Virginia that were apparently dispersed by no less than Frank Sinatra. This under-the-table money Was used to make payoffs to key election officials. Sam Giancana will dispatch Paul D'Amato, known as Skinny, who owned the famed 500 Club in Atlantic City. Skinny heads out to West Virginia to use his influence with the sheriffs who gambled in the illegal gaming rooms of Greenbrier County. These men controlled the state's political machine, and many of them had been customers at Skinny's club few of them owed Skinny some money and others were just more than happy to do him a solid. This favor was rewarded from a cash supply of more than $50,000. Their job, the state's political machine, was to get the vote out for Kennedy any way they could. Jack Kennedy will win the May 10th West Virginia primary easily with 61% of the vote. After Kennedy receives the Democratic nomination in July of 1960, Jack will ask Judith to arrange several more meetings with Sam Giancana. Judith assumes that at least one of them at the Navarro Hotel in New York in early August has to do with the general election. Judith says after Jack was elected, Sam kept saying he never would have been president if it hadn't have been for his efforts on Kennedy's behalf in Cook County, Illinois. An overwhelming turnout for Jack Kennedy in Cook County enables Jack to carry Illinois in the election by a slim 8,858 votes. In the early months of the Kennedy administration, Jack has little time for Judith. During this period, the presence of a communist regime in nearby Cuba was becoming quite a large political issue. On April the 17th, 1961, the CIA backs an attempt by Cuban nationalists to oust Castro. The failure of the infamous Bay of Pigs invasion was a major embarrassment for the Kennedy administration, and the president will tell the nation he accepted sole blame for the Cuban fiasco. It is a few days after the bungled invasion Jack Kennedy will call Judith in California and ask her to fly to Las Vegas to pick up an envelope from Johnny Roselli, which she was, Judith was, to deliver to Sam Giancana in Chicago. Once there, Judith arranged a meeting between the president and the mafia boss. This meeting takes place in her suite at the Ambassador East on April the 28th. Judith remembers... It was a short meeting early in the evening. Sam arrived first, and then Jack, who put his arms around me and said, I'm sorry I can't stay and see you for the evening. He was in town to address a Democratic Party dinner. He then went over and shook Sam's hand. Sam said hello. He called him Jack, not Mr. President. I asked them if they would like me to leave. Jack said, no, I'd rather you didn't. I guess he didn't want me to be seen leaving the room. To give them privacy, I then went into the bathroom, sat on the edge of the tub, and waited until they were finished. The following day, April the 29th, at Kennedy's request, Judith will fly to Florida, where she will have drinks with Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli, who were both there for a meeting. At this time, Judith will pick up another envelope from Roselli and Giancana, returning to Washington, D.C. on May the 4th. Upon her arrival back in Washington, Judith then calls the White House, asks for Evelyn Lincoln, John Kennedy's private secretary. Evelyn Lincoln puts Judith right through to the president. Judith will say we were scheduled to have lunch at the White House on Saturday, May the 6th, but he said the envelope could not wait, so I took it to him late Friday afternoon. I took a taxi to the West Entrance checked in with the guards, and was escorted to the cabinet room by a Kennedy aide. Judith says, I gave him the envelope and he teasingly asked me if I had a nice time in Florida. Did you have to spend that much time down there? He asked me. I was there for you, Jack. How's Sam? John Kennedy wants to know. Now, I don't want you to get too friendly with him, he continues. Don't let him turn your head. The next day, Judith does return to the White House for lunch. She is shown into the family quarters where she and Dave Powers make small talk while Jack Kennedy took a swim. Over hamburgers in the family's dining room, Jack questions Judith closely about Sinatra. How's Frank, he asked. What's he doing? Who's he seeing? He loved Hollywood gossip and was insatiably curious about everything, but especially about Frank and his love life, remembers Judith. They seemed to have a genuine mutual admiration society. Frank was in awe of Jack's background and his power as president, and Jack was mesmerized by Sinatra's swinging lifestyle. After lunch, Jack escorts Judith into the master bedroom. Judith reports that she saw twin beds. Jack then led me through an alcove to another bedroom with a large double bed and we made love. As he was showing her out, Jack gives Judith another envelope he wanted her to deliver to Sam Giancana. For days and sometimes weeks, at a time that spring and summer of 1961, Judith crisscrosses the country by train and by plane and by automobiles at her own expense. Friends carrying plain 9x12 manila envelopes across the country from Jack Kennedy to Sam Giancana oh, and Johnny Roselli, and all the way back around again. Judith says about the envelopes, they were sealed but not taped. There was no writing on them, no labels, no stamped addresses, nothing. They weighed about as much as a weekly magazine and felt as if they contained papers, but I don't know for sure because I never looked inside. It never occurred to me to do something like that. I always carried them in my purse so they didn't have to be checked or handled by anyone else. I never put them in a hotel safe or anything like that because I didn't want to let them out of my possession. I didn't know what they contained, but I knew that the contents were very important to Jack. Judith never questions her role about what she's being asked to do. She blindly accepts the new gig as the president's personal messenger. Judith says, I thought I was in love with Jack. He trusted me and I was doing something important for him. I was 26 years old and I didn't have any great purpose in my life. That's probably why I became so involved in doing this and did it with such gusto. I guess I felt I was doing something important. It is not until 1975 when the Senate committee report comes out that Judith even guesses about what might have been in the envelopes. She'll say it finally dawned on me that I was probably helping Jack orchestrate the attempted assassination of Fidel Castro with the help of the mafia. Kind of takes us through 1961 and it is by early 1962 that the relationship between Jack and Judith begins to sour. Judith says, I was very lonely a lot of the time going with a married man. Also, I was raised a Catholic and knew that such an illicit relationship was wrong in the eyes of God. But I suppose I rationalized things because Jack had said his marriage was unhappy and divorce was a possibility. Though Judith had visited Jack Kennedy about 20 times at the White House, she now begins to resent the suggestion that she was supposed to jump every time he called her. Judith will say there were lots of little arguments. He called less and I called less. Also, by this time, Judith realizes that she's being followed. In the opposite side, in another part of this developing story, don't forget that Attorney General Robert Kennedy has been leading a drive against organized crime. Robert Kennedy has specifically targeted Sam Giancana as a top priority investigation. It is not known whether Robert Kennedy knew of his brother's dealings with the mafia, but the federal agents following Sam Giancana naturally are seeing Judith Campbell in Sam's company. At this point, federal agents begin watching Judith's apartment. They follow her when she goes out shopping. She'll explain they hounded me about Sam and I was terrified. I called Jack immediately to tell him that the FBI had been to see me, asking all sorts of questions about Sam. I told him I had said I knew nothing about Sam's business affairs. Jack reassured me. He said, don't worry. They won't do anything to you, and don't worry about Sam. You know he works for us. He told me that over and over. Don't worry. Sam works for us. As the FBI surveillance increases, Judith Campbell, though, pressures Jack Kennedy to intervene. She'll say that Jack said, ignore them. It's just part of Hoover's vendetta against me. Judith goes on to explain that Jack Kennedy hated J. Edgar Hoover and called him, quote unquote, a queer son of a bitch. As the harassment, though, got worse, Jack lost his patience with Judith, she says. You have to learn how to handle this, he'd say. I've got more important things to deal with. This is bringing us to March 22nd, 1962. Put this time period in your clue book. On March 22, 1962, J. Edgar Hoover does have a luncheon meeting with Jack Kennedy at the White House. Here, J. Edgar tells President Kennedy that the FBI's investigation of the mafia had revealed Judith Campbell's ties to Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana. Hoover continues, saying Judith had made calls to the White House and seemed to have a telephone relationship with Evelyn Lincoln, the president's secretary. Not knowing that she had been seeing Giancana and Roselli at the president's request, J. Edgar Hoover warns Kennedy of the potential damage to his image and the administration if word gets out. This is not necessarily the only thing that. Hoover reveals in this March meeting more to come on that. But of her affair with Jack Kennedy, Judith says later, the happier the visit with Jack, the greater the emptiness afterward. I used to detach myself from the reality of his wife. Jackie Kennedy did not exist for me. I deceived myself into thinking that he rejected that part of his life, that he wanted to be with me, but there was nothing he could do about her. That was my way of rationalizing of living with the situation. I wanted to love and be loved on a daily basis, but I was closing the door on that possibility. Judith will later tell People Magazine that by the summer of 1962, the relationship was over. There was no big argument or anything like that. It was just two people no longer willing to put up with each other. The gloss was gone. During her affair with Jack Kennedy, When Judith had felt lonely or frustrated, Judith will often turn to her friend Sam Giancana for friendship and sympathy. Judith says that Sam was one of the nicest, kindest people she knew. I didn't know he was a murderer, she'll say. I wouldn't have believed it. It is only when Judith is no longer sleeping with Jack Kennedy, she says, did she allow herself to drift into an affair with Sam Giancana, who was a widower. The affair between Sam and Judith will last just a few months through the fall of 1962. Judith says, I was never in love with Sam. Our affair was over when he proposed and I said I didn't want to marry him. A few other fun spider webs here. Sam Giancana will introduce Judith to Eddie Fisher in 1963. Eddie Fisher will soon introduce Judith to Dr. Max Jacobson, and his magical vitamin shots that were later revealed to be garden-variety amphetamines. Eddie Fisher immediately takes a shine to the raven-haired, blue-eyed beauty Judith, who has more than a passing resemblance to the second Mrs. Fisher, otherwise known as Elizabeth Taylor. Judith and Eddie Fisher would get dosed by Dr. Feelgood, Mrs. Dr. Jacobson, and stay up all night talking about Eddie Fisher's failed relationship with Elizabeth Taylor, who had then thrown Eddie over for the furious love of Richard Burton. If you're thinking that maybe one other name is familiar in Sam Giancana's story, you're thinking Phyllis McGuire, you're right on time. I do have a follow-up bonus coming this week. Dominic Dunn will interview Phyllis McGuire in the 1980s. That's a fantastic article but I want to connect a few pieces here. Judith had read a newspaper item linking Sam Giancana with Phyllis McGuire, part of the famous McGuire sisters, legendary beauty. Judith reads an article linking Sam and Phyllis in the fall of 1962. However, Judith is not forced to confront the relationship between Sam and Phyllis until it was confirmed by the press in the summer of 1963. This is when Sam Giancana and Phyllis McGuire were caught vacationing together. By this time, summer of 1963, Sam Giancana has been added to Nevada's Black Book, meaning that Giancana is banned from frequenting any casino in the state. After this incident blows up in the press, Frank Sinatra has to divest from both Calneva as well as his stake in the Sands. It is unclear exactly when Phyllis McGuire and Sam Giancana started dating. Several sources report that Sam was 52 years old at the time, which would mean their affair began back in 1960. If this is true, it means Sam Giancana was seeing both Phyllis McGuire and Judith Campbell simultaneously. In her book, Judith Campbell will claim that the FBI surveillance continued even after her relationship with President Kennedy had cooled off. She'll write the harassment from the FBI was horrendous. There probably was a tremendous conflict at the time. The CIA was protecting Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli and the FBI was trying to get them. And the White House was scared to death that the FBI might get them. I was caught right in the middle of it. Now again, to note here that during this time, Judith is being treated by Dr. Feelgood, Dr. Max Jacobson, with what she has been told are vitamin shots, but which in all actuality, the good doctor is shooting her up with speed. Amphetamines, one of the symptoms of amphetamines, they do lead to paranoia. So while I have no doubt that Judith Campbell was under surveillance, it is up to contention about how oppressive it was. It may have seemed to be more oppressive to her at the time. Believe women, I'm going to go with Judith's story here. Because the day after Marilyn Monroe dies, Judith Campbell reports that her apartment had been burgled, the phone call records taken, but her jewels had been left behind. Suspicious. After John Kennedy was assassinated, November 22nd, 1963, Judith will absolutely retreat from the social circle that brought Kennedy and Judith together. Judith takes her dignity and gets the hell out. The lucky one. Judith even begins going by her middle name, Catherine. Most people call her Kate. She's no longer known as Judith. Judith will give birth to a son in 1965, never publicly identifying the father. Oppressive, being followed, terrified for her life, I can see it. Judith here makes just an incredibly hard decision. Judith will place her son with adoptive parents when he is a year old, saying later that the constant FBI surveillance motivated her into that choice. Judith will keep her son's baby photo on her bedside table for the rest of her life, right next to a loaded gun. It is fair to say that the 1970s were not a kind decade to Judith Campbell. After relinquishing custody of her son, Judith becomes her parents' primary caregiver until each of their deaths from cancer. During this time, Judith will meet golf professional Dan Exner, who was 14 years her junior. Judith and Dan wed in 1975. They will settle into a large house in Newport Beach, California, which includes both a swimming pool and a pier. Tough times, though. Bliss doesn't last for long. Just a month after Dan and Judith got married, Sam Giancana was murdered in his home just before Sam was scheduled to testify before a Senate committee. Sam Giancana was shot seven times in the head in his Oak Park, Illinois kitchen. Sam Giancana's murder was never solved. It is four months after wedding Dan Exner that Judith is subpoenaed by that same Senate committee. Judith tells people that days after Sam was murdered, Johnny Roselli testified before the Senate committee about the CIA attempts on Castro, including Giancana's role. A year later, Johnny Roselli's body was found in a 55-gallon oil drum weighted with heavy chains floating in Dumbfoundling Bay near Miami. Judith will later admit that she lied to the Senate committee, saying, I lied before to protect myself. If I had told the truth, I'd have been killed. I kept my secret out of fear. The Senate committee will promise Judith anonymity. The Senate committee lied. Judith will tell the LA Times in 2013, people who loved Jack felt that if they could degrade me, then he was just a bad boy. On the other side, his critics felt they could destroy Jack by destroying me and making me as bad as possible. The fallout from the leaked testimony of Judith was brutal. Sally Quinn will write in a 1977 article for the Washington Post, that Judith Campbell Exner now was, quote, labeled an opportunist, exploiting her relationships a crass materialist. Her sister refuses to see her or let her see her nieces and nephews. Her husband's ex-wife refuses to let them see his daughter Sarah anymore. Many of her friends have dropped her. Even stores she used to patronize have declared her persona non grata. Judith will write in her book, My Story, I'm being called every name in the book. Maybe if I was a different kind of person, if I had a different kind of mother and father, I'd be able to shrug my shoulders at some of the things that are being said about me. I can't. That kind of thing is too important to me. There's too much respect wound up in them. It was not just a matter of two people meeting and going to bed together. It was not a fling. But that's the light it's being put in. That isn't me. I didn't live that way. I'm no angel. I didn't have a great many affairs, but yes, I was single for many, many years, and I also went with a couple people who were nobodies. And yes, I had affairs. I don't paint myself as an angel, but neither am I a whore, and neither am I a conspirator. In 1977, Judith will publish her autobiography called My Story. The New York Times critic argues that the evidence that Judith Campbell Exner offers addresses telephone numbers, descriptions of the White House decor, quote, makes the defensive protestations of the keepers of the Kennedy flame somewhat dubious. The 70s will continue to be tough for Judith. In 1978, Judith found what turned out to be a malignant lump in her breast and undergoes a mastectomy. The following year, in 1979, Judith's husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Doctors were able to successfully remove the tumor, though, but not before it had destroyed Dan Exner's pituitary gland, which leads to chronic health problems, rendering Dan unable to work. In 1985, Judith and her husband Dan Exner separate It is the strain of public scrutiny, their respective health problems, and the loss of several family members that ultimately proved too much for the couple to bear. In 1988, Judith says, Although we are no longer together, we speak on the phone several times a week and are not yet seeking a divorce. I will always love Dan. He was the best part of my life. Judith was diagnosed with terminal cancer. In 1988, Judith will tell People magazine, now that I'm dying and nothing more can happen to me, I want to be completely honest. I don't think I should have to die with the secret of what I did for Jack Kennedy or what he did with the power of his presidency. I feel that I am finally free of the past. Although Judith will describe herself as free, she doesn't exactly live that way. She'll spend the remaining years of her life in virtual seclusion in Southern California. Something nice here, though, that same year that People Magazine did the cover story on Judith, this was 1988, her biological son that she gave up for adoption did come looking for her. After they reconnected, they spoke on the phone almost every night, and he will write of his birth mother, She cared enough to give me the chance at what I have now. I love her for the decision that she made. Judith Campbell Exner dies in 1999. Her friends and family scatter her ashes into the ocean off Newport Beach. In the years before her death, Judith will reveal more and more of her story. Critics on both sides of the aisle have argued that her later revelations, including conceiving a child with John Kennedy, then terminating that pregnancy, render her unreliable. Judith Campbell has been dismissed as unstable and paranoid. But I find her story fairly credible. She doesn't recount history so much as she adds to her previous narrative, holding back less and less as time goes on. Even those who claim to believe Judith's story describe her in condescending terms. Sally Quinn will write, again, this is June 1977 in the Washington Post. There's no question that Judith Exner is hardly a genius. Her book is written with a near childlike simplicity, except for those parts which seem to be written by her writer, veteran journalist, Ovid Demeris. I agree here that I don't find Judith unintelligent. I do get the sense, honestly, like Marilyn Monroe in a lot of ways, that she is trusting, she is eager to please. It's possible that Judith didn't recognize when people like Frank Sinatra and Sam Giancana and John Kennedy were working all the angles because Judith wouldn't see. Judith doesn't have a sordid agenda, and I think sordid agendas of others probably were not on her radar. If she was the opportunist that her detractors made her out to be, Judith probably wouldn't have kept her mouth shut for decades. Perhaps the only reason she did tell her story at all was that the Senate committee leaked her testimony. Maybe she didn't want her family to, in fact, think she was a sex worker. Judith will tell Liz Smith in the 1990s, I was 26 and in love. Was I supposed to have more judgment than the President of the United States? In 1977, Judith will say, There are three things I can honestly say I did right in my lifetime. What I did for my child, what I did for my mother when she had cancer, and what I did for myself when I married Dan Exner. Judith's friend, L.A. Times writer Pat Morrison, memorialized thusly about Judith. So she has no grave, but she has an epitaph, a modest request. She said again and again, you don't have to like me. You don't have to approve of me, but when you make your judgment, you have to know the truth about me. And I can't do much better than that. Judith Campbell Exner, fascinating character in this arc that we're telling on Done and Done this season. Judith, a fascinating life. Honestly, good on her for getting out of the fray. Although I would not call her life extraordinarily lucky, our dear Marilyn was not so lucky. She was not able to escape the fray. We will be coming back with the continuation of Marilyn's arc on our next Dunday. However, I couldn't go a moment further without you getting the truth about Judith Campbell Exner and how that weaves into our tale. Investigators, thank you all for listening, for spending your time with me today, for telling your friends, for the kind reviews And, oh, an extra dollop of love to our Patreon supporters. I am so grateful for each and every one of you and all the ways that you support me and the way you support our little show. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com